Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. In my years of investigating defunct sanatoriums, mental health facilities, and jails, I've seen it all. Full-bodied apparitions, shadow figures, doors slamming, you name it. Perhaps more alarming, I've heard whispers in my ear, and in some cases, I've been touched and grabbed by unseen forces. Even as seasoned an investigator as I am, I know when I walk through the dilapidated doors or squeaky gates of these old complexes, something unexplainable will happen. And that knowledge and expectancy, to this day, still sends a chill down my spine as I begin. But what happens when the location wasn't just a sanatorium, mental health facility, or jail? What if, at some point in its history, it was all three? Join me, friends, as we journey to Crescent Sanatorium in Lilly, Pennsylvania. I'm Amy Bruni, and welcome to Haunted Road. The Crescent Sanatorium and Prison stands 2,000 feet above sea level, perched in the peaks of Pennsylvania's Allegheny Mountain Range. The complex includes roughly 20 buildings. The picturesque three-story Tudor Revival-style administrative building is made of brick and wood and has a peaked roof. The structure might remind visitors of a witch's cottage hidden in the forest. Meanwhile, the surrounding buildings look more modern and utilitarian. If you step inside them, you'll find crumbling rooms with chipped paint and, in some cases, old abandoned equipment. The on-site power station is still filled with dated machinery. Inside the administrative building, a wooden lobby welcomes visitors, only for the doors to open to long-abandoned prison cells. Elsewhere in the complex, a sunny, window-lined chapel sits locked behind a wrought iron door with a cross pattern. Eerie stone-lined underground tunnels connect the buildings. These dark corridors feature bare concrete walls and flooring, exposed ducts, and water stains. The whole Crescent Sanatorium and prison facility is like this, a blend of warm, welcoming imagery with locked doors, ominous layouts, and other features that hint at a much darker past. It was originally built in 1916, and it owes its existence to steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, Initially, he bought the land because he wanted to give his mother a mountaintop mansion. 
The area he chose was popular among wealthy cosmopolitans looking for a place to get away from it all. Sadly, his mother passed away before the house was built. The grieving Carnegies sold the property for just one dollar. As the Cambria Memory Project's History One webpage reports, he just had one caveat. The buyer, the state of Pennsylvania, had to build a tuberculosis hospital on the land. That clinic came to be known as Crescent Sanatorium, named after the nearby town of Crescent. But residents just called it the San, and patients flocked to it, drawn by its promise of therapeutic, clean mountain air in a setting so remote it was only accessible by mule-drawn wagon or sled. Today, we know TB can be treated with antibiotics, but in the early 20th century, doctors believed the best remedies were, as the Cambria Memory Project put it, fresh air, nourishing food, and bed rest. Understandably, these methods weren't particularly effective. Tuberculosis, also known as consumption, is a life-threatening disease that progressively destroys a person's lungs. One TB patient who was treated at Crescent compared her diagnosis to cancer, as reported on WQED's episode Crescent, Remembering Life at the San. While the prognosis wasn't great, the sanatorium was otherwise a peaceful, bucolic escape for the patients. Residents would spend a significant portion of their time sunbathing in so-called cure chairs. These were canvas seats arranged outdoors. Unfortunately, this daily treatment was required year-round, rain, snow, or shine. When they weren't lounging in the open air, residents could do art projects, play cards, or screen movies together. They hosted talent shows and planted hemlock, pine, and spruce trees all over the property thanks to a planting program established in 1917. And the sand drew prestigious guests like Helen Keller, who gave an inspirational speech there in 1920. The residents even published a newsletter and broadcast their own radio station, which patients could listen to in bed through headphones if they were too sick to get up. As dire as any TB diagnosis was, the care at the San was considered top-notch. The Scare Factors Haunted Crescent Sanatorium webpage says that numerous residents had begun to recover from their illness by the 1920s, and many chose to stay at the San, not as patients, but as caregivers. The facility offered a nursing school on site for over 30 years. As more adult patients healed, the hospital was able to take on other forms of residence, especially children. The children's ward opened in 1932. Many of the kids at the San weren't actively suffering from TB, but they needed to undergo preventative treatment after friends or family members had become ill. As treatment and medical knowledge advanced, so did the facility's offerings. Over the decades, they installed x-ray machines and began offering surgeries on site rather than requiring patients to transfer to another hospital for operations. But in the 1950s, doctors across the world began implementing new, more effective tuberculosis treatments. This was good news for many people diagnosed with TB, but it meant the Crescent Sanatorium needed to find a new specialty. It was converted to a mental health hospital in 1964. When the few remaining patients at the sanatorium learned they'd be moved to another facility, they objected to the change strenuously. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette published their open letter, which said, We wish to protest this action. Every patient in this hospital is very much opposed to being transferred. 
but their complaints didn't sway anyone. Unfortunately, the hospital's new focus on mental health treatment came with sloppiness and corner-cutting. At some point, the people running it became aware that the buildings weren't in compliance with fire code, but they failed to make the necessary fixes. They also lost extensive records during 1972's Hurricane Agnes. Among other things, the storm destroyed all the information they'd had about who was buried in the facility's graveyard. It's estimated that 350 people were interred there, their identities lost to time. Then, on February 15, 1973, another inevitable tragedy struck. A fire broke out, claiming three lives. 21-year-old Carl Dodara and 30-year-old John Lytle were both sleeping in the dormitories when the fires first ignited. They succumbed to smoke inhalation. Another resident died days later in a hospital, 21-year-old Alex Streppa. The facility was rebuilt and operated for nearly a decade more. Finally, the mental health hospital closed its doors at the end of 1982, only to reopen about four years later, this time as a prison. Renamed SCI Crescent or Crescent State Prison, the medium-security men's facility could accommodate 499 inmates, although it later grew and incorporated a maximum-security juvenile operation as well. While the penal institution was able to utilize many of the original buildings from the sanatorium, several structures were demolished so new ones could be built in their place. When Crescent State Prison received its first prisoners in February 1987, it quickly became home to some of the most dangerous and violent criminals of the time, men like serial killer Joseph Callinger. Joseph was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia during his incarceration, but prior to that, he believed God had ordered him to kill three million people. He recruited his 12-year-old son to help him on his murderous mission, and together, the father and child murdered numerous people, including another of Joseph's sons, 14-year-old Joseph Jr. After his conviction, Joseph spent some time in a mental health facility, then was transferred to SCI Crescent. He remained there six years, the final five of which were in solitary confinement, with constant surveillance due to fears that he'd take his own life. Ultimately, he died of natural causes on March 26, 1996. The following year, another infamous killer moved into Crescent. This was John E. DuPont, an eccentric millionaire who became dangerously paranoid in the 1990s. Debbie Goldberg reported in the Washington Post that John came to believe he was in some kind of danger and lined his home with razor wire as a protective measure. He seemed to think the trees on his estate were both mobile and mechanical and moved around. The same article also notes that John often referred to himself as Christ Child and Dalai Lama. In addition to his mental health struggles, John was deeply invested in athletics. In an article with the New York Times, Jerry Longman wrote that John had an athletic facility constructed and he financially sponsored swim, wrestling, and pentathlete teams. He also allowed Olympic wrestler Dave Schultz and his family to live on his estate. On January 6, 1996, John fatally shot Dave. His motives are still unclear, but it has been speculated that John believed Dave was conspiring against him somehow. 
After his arrest and conviction, he lived at the Crescent State Prison from 1997 to December 2010. The 72-year-old died in Crescent of natural causes. By this time, the facility had fallen a long way from the beloved, airy TB sanatorium it had once been. These days, the prison guards and other officials were especially harsh to inmates with mental health conditions, who were often brutally punished for behavior related to their disorders. Punishments included withholding showers, toilet paper, and mattresses. Many prisoners were thrown into isolation, a brutal, damagingly stressful measure even for people with no previous history of mental health struggles. In light of all this, it's probably no surprise that many incarcerated people at Crescent State Prison took their own lives. One inmate who survived a suicide attempt was punished for trying to kill himself. He was charged a fine and spent about a month in isolation. The U.S. Department of Justice opened an investigation on the facility. In their final report, Thomas E. Perez and David J. Hickton wrote that Crescent State Prison was violating inmates' constitutional rights. They said, Crescent routinely locks prisoners with serious mental illness in their cells for roughly 23 hours per day for months, even years at a time. However, when the Crescent State Prison shut down in 2015, it wasn't because of the chronic mistreatment. It was because the facility had grown too expensive to maintain, as reported by Jim Cheney in Uncovering Pennsylvania. Most recently, the Crescent Sanatorium and Prison Facility has operated as a hydroponic farm, which is run by Big House Produce. They used to offer tours, but recently closed. They posted on their GoFundMe page that this is due to a dispute with their landlord about ownership of the property. It's hard to say when ghost hunters and paranormal investigators will be welcomed back into the halls of Crescent, which is unfortunate, as it's said to be extremely haunted. In the past, visitors have reported seeing the spirits of prisoners and workers alike. There are also accounts of shadow figures and screams and conversation with no clear source. At times, guests get the eerie sense that they're being watched, and many have felt unseen hands touch them. On Amy's Crypt's website on America's Most Haunted Hospital in Prison, there are accounts of people who visited the facility's chapel, only to suddenly feel overcome with weariness and tremors. The same site notes that a mysterious creature has been spotted inside this building. It's said to cling to the ceiling, then follow visitors around the property after they leave the sanctuary. The Children's Ward, which also operated for some time as a morgue, is another hotspot for spiritual activity. The entities there have been known to chase guests, and it's also said that paranormal investigators have recorded EVP that are hostile and argumentative in tone. We don't know where many of these spirits come from, but one has been identified. On an episode of Ghost Hunters, historian Tyler Modry described a boy named Brian Lehrer. He was admitted to Crescent after a bad fall and a head injury in 1956. While the tumble didn't kill him, it did cause brain damage, which meant Brian was never released from the hospital. He ended up dying at Crescent, and he's been identified as the young boy spirit who haunts the power plant. Another specter has been identified as serial killer Joseph Callinger. During his lifetime, his cot was in cell block F, and his ghost has been spotted in that building. 
In this structure, visitors often hear footsteps, voices, moans, and taps in rooms that are supposed to be empty. Doors slam on their own. The Crescent Sanatorium page on the Haunted U.S. website suggests sometimes they'll swing shut if an investigator asks a particular question. Some claim the ghosts in the prison block are often particularly drawn to female visitors. Women who walk through here are frequently touched or might feel someone tug at their hair. It's no wonder the structure is so haunted. Between its time as a hospital, a mental health clinic, and a prison, Crescent has borne witness to almost a century of suffering, death, and tragedy. Up next, we'll be talking to paranormal investigator Rachel Rochella. Rachel worked at Crescent as a tour guide and investigator for years, and she's got some amazing firsthand encounters to share. That's coming up after the break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I am now joined by Rachel Rochella. And Rachel actually was a tour guide and investigator at Crescent for a while. And this is really interesting for me, Rachel, because I've never been to Crescent. So many of the places that we cover, I've actually investigated. But this is not the case here. So I'm really happy to have you. So thank you. Well, thank you. One of the things that struck me in the history right away was that Crescent was not just you know, a sanatorium. It had a lot of different iterations. Obviously, it went from sanatorium to mental health facility to prison. So just kind of right off the bat, uh, well, first of all, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just really excited to talk about this. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, In that context, which of those kind of identities do you think causes the most activity at uh, the sanatorium or the Crescent? So I think, at least for me, when I was there, it was kind of dependent on where you were. In the prison buildings, there was a lot of more prisoner activity. And then in some of the sanatorium buildings, they had converted them to prison buildings. But there was still remnants of tuberculosis patients and, you know, even kids at some times. So it was like you got all of the eras 
when you were there, just depending on what kind of night it was, which buildings you were in. And the prison, I think, did have a strong presence just because that was the last portion that the property had. And it was there from, you know, 87, 83 to 87, and then until 2013. So I just, I've had a lot of interactions with prisoners and then in some of the older buildings with sanatorium. Right. That makes sense. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of places to explore there. I think they said, I mean, how many buildings are left standing at this point that you know of? So there's still a lot of buildings up inside of the prison fence where the yard was and everything. There's about 20, 22 up there. And then there's still some warehouses that weren't used at the time. But there's there's a good bit of buildings. 20 of them are open or were open to exploration. So there was a lot to go through. Good Lord. And so when you're in there, I'm assuming there's still a lot of uh, a lot of remnants of what used to be there. Like, okay. so are we talking just furniture? Are there records? Like I've been in some of these places Mm -hmm. and it's literally like they just locked it up and walked away one day and didn't change a thing. Is it still like that in spots? In spots, yes, there's still papers that they don't have identifiers on them, but papers that you would have seen, forms. Uh, there's even prison passes that are laying around. It's in some of the basement areas where not a lot of people went. There were, it just looked like they got up and walked away Yeah, and left everything. It's it's so interesting uh, how that happens with a lot of these government buildings when they close down. Mm-hmm. It's just people pack up their few things and then everything else just kind of gets left. But I guess it kind of is good from an investigative standpoint because you can yes. kind of see what it looked like when it was in operation. Now, With all of those choices for buildings, what areas did you find to be the most active? There were a few. My top one was Building F, which was a nurse's home during sanatorium and then was used for inmates with special needs during the prison. It was a building that the first time I walked in, I didn't know the history all that much until later on. But the first time I ever walked in that building, there was this overwhelming feeling of like despair and just this emotional vibe to the building. I even just walked right back out at the time because I didn't know what I was getting into. And then the more that I spent time up there, the more that that building kind of showed itself in a paranormal way. So how does that feel kind of after the fact, you know, when you walk into a building and you do, you get a vibe from it and then you later learn the history that kind of mm-hmm. explains that, to, you know, you you learn the history yeah. and find out like, oh, I felt that when I went in there. Like, was that kind of an aha moment for you? Yeah, it was. It was really weird because I had been um, one week before just to take some photos and then the next week had gone back for my first investigation and that's when I learned what that building was. And it was just this moment of, oh, that's that feeling that I felt Mm -hmm. where you learn what the inmates were in there and and what happened. And it was just kind of, it was confirmation of my feelings, but then also really odd at the same time. Right. What kind of activity would you say is the most prevalent throughout that complex? Like, what do you think people encounter most often? I think it's it's a lot of residual noises, knocks, just bangs and stuff, and then shadow figures are really prominent there. That's something that I've had a lot of experience with myself. And then I think as I got to know the property more, it was uh, disembodied voices mm-hmm. were another big thing too. Just hearing people talking as you're walking up to a building and then there's no one in there. Yeah, I read about that, that that's really commonplace Mm -hmm. there. And I guess that would make sense. I mean, I I find that in a lot of those kind of institutional type 
locations, shadow figures are there a lot. And I feel, and I almost like associate it with, with routine. Like there was a structure there and there were things that happened at certain times every day. Mm -hmm. And that's not really present in a lot of other haunted locations that we might go to. And so I think that's just kind of that energy a bit. Like, I don't think that's all shadow figures, Mm -hmm. but I think that kind of I always think of it this kind of like wispy, like just kind of replaying over and over again. And in this case, people lived and died by their routine a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah, they did. And that's what I think, too, is just it's a lot of you can tell in certain areas at certain times the energy will kind of calm down and then it'll pick back up. So it is like they're just going through their their daily routine. So it sounds like it's probably not just limited to nighttime activity. I know we like to go into these places at (laughs) night, but it sounds like it's happening 24-7 there. Yes, it is. (laughs) Do you feel like I know right now there's kind of at the time of this recording, which it's to be fair, November 2023, whoever's listening, there's not investigations happening there because there's kind of a dispute happening with the landlord and everything and trying to figure out who's going to own it next. And do you think that that is detrimental to the spirits that are there? I do. I think that they can obviously see that there's not people coming in at this time. And I think that they thrive on that energy Mm -hmm. of investigators coming in. And even people who weren't there to investigate, but just to take photos or explore, they thrive on that human interaction. And now I just don't think, I'm not sure what's, what they're doing, what's going on, but I think they do miss that interaction. I can imagine like whoever gets in there next, it's going to be really mm-hmm. interesting to see what yes. happens. Like even if they're not, you know, paranormal people, whoever takes over that yes. building, <laughs> they could be in for quite a surprise. Exactly. <laughs> so how did you get involved in Crescent? Was it just like something that you stumbled across? Like were you an investigator before? Like how did you get into that role? Yes, I was an investigator before, just not as often but just here and there. And I had actually discovered Crescent because there was an ad on Facebook that they had put out for photo tours. And I was into, I'm into photography pretty heavy. And so I saw that and it was the chapel, actually, the outside of the chapel that I saw. And it was just this call that I thought I have to go see this place. And ever since then, it kind of hooked me in and I've even moved to be closer to it so I could, you know, be involved more at the time. And it's been it was such a ride getting to be on the property and see it and investigate and kind of learn the spirits. Yeah. And I think they start to recognize you too. Like when you're yes. there <laughs> for a while, like they start to know mm-hmm. who you are. And just from what I've heard about you and what went on there, like it sounds like most everyone who investigates there has handled the spirits there respectfully. Now, has that always been the case? Yes. It has, at least from my time up there, it was, everyone was always very respectful and Everyone that I had talked to that were going to go up there for a private investigation, I would just tell them, you have to be respectful because if you're going to go in there with a non-respectful attitude, they're not going to come out. They're not going to talk to you. They want that respect because they just want to interact. They're not going to kind of show themselves if you're not treating them with respect. Exactly. Now, kind of along those lines, like it's, you know, obviously we're talking about how there's a lot of residual activity and stuff, but what about who or, or who do you think like spirit wise there or experience wise is the most like interactive intelligently? Like, do you have like full intelligent interactions as well? In certain places? Yes. I've had intelligent interactions in building F 
And then in building E, um, which is a cell block, there's, I think E has a lot of intelligent spirits because it was, uh, it was a high security cell block. And when you go in there, it's a different type of feeling. They will interact with you if you ask questions, not so much sometimes on voice recorders, but just asking, you know, for yes or no answers for knocks or bangs or certain things like that. And then the same with building F. Um, I've had more interactions intelligently in there through electromagnetic devices, you know, REM pods, things like that. And it's more the children sometimes that interact in F with those devices. And then uh, at one point, we had children interacting at the end of one hallway and adults at the other. So I think it's just dependent on where you're at. Uh, mainly those two buildings with intelligence, but every building had some sort of intelligent spirit. Just the level of it was different. Do you think that like they're aware of each other? Because obviously you have this kind of situation where you have, you know, a high security prison uh, mm-hmm. in a building that also once was treating children yes. where children passed away as well. Do you think they're aware of each other? I do, uh, especially in you know, those buildings that were tuberculosis buildings first and then the prison converted them, I think that there's a big interaction between the two. Just, I'm, you know, not sure if they're on the same timeline or what, but just the interaction because sometimes it felt like the spirits were interacting more with each other Mm -hmm. um, through the devices than they were with us. What I think is sad is that there is a cemetery on the property where like the records were lost, correct? Yes, yes, it is. In my research, it seemed like there were probably 350 or so people buried out there. Do you think that has had any impact on the activity or has that ever come up in your investigations? I think so. It's never come up for me personally in investigations, but I knew of the cemetery and I knew that, you know, they did find some and exhume them and actually move them to a cemetery in town. And I think that those ones that they didn't, you know, they're kind of, they might be lost out there just trying to find out what's happened to them if they want their grave to be remembered. And it's just not. Yeah, that's really hard. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. I do think there is this kind of, there is this importance to some people, not everybody, but to some people just having that kind of space for them in, Mm -hmm. you know, in death. And, you know, I, I have encountered many spirits who were upset about how they were treated and, you know, after dying, which I think is so like, obviously some people just don't care, but others are are very passionate about it enough to come back in the afterlife and try to get it corrected. So (laughs) I could see that having to do with something Mm -hmm. for sure. Shadow figures we've talked about and obviously disembodied voices and things. Have people seen like full-bodied apparitions there? I don't. I think some. It's more, honestly, it's outside the buildings more than inside for everything that I've heard. I had someone tell me that they saw a man standing on the sidewalk um, out Mm. in between the chapel and one of the administration buildings. And it gets, there's heavy fog because of this sits on top of the mountain. So it is some heavy fog. And so you look into the fog and see a man standing there. And it is, it's just really eerie. And then I myself have seen, it was around Halloween one year. And I was walking down in the dark, of course. And there was this man with a flashlight on his head. And I went to go see who he was, where he was coming from, and just took off running across the property. And still to this day, I don't, think that was a person because we knew where everyone was at the time. 
it was just, it still freaks me out because I, I don't know what I saw at that point. Yeah, and it's not exactly a, an easily accessible area, right? Like, it's no, kind it of, is not. <laughs> it is very it is, remote. Yes, very remote. And there's only one gate in and out of the property. And this was very high up on the property mm. at the time. Now, have you ever had experiences in there that just kind of left you uncomfortable? Yes, there was. There's been a few. Um, one was actually my very first investigation there, and it was in E, which is the cell block. I had gotten physically touched very first time, mm-hmm. and it it still gives me chills talking about it. There's two stories, and this is one of them. And that one was, I was in just standing in the doorway of a cell, you know, listening, and it felt like there was a pressure on the back of my leg. And so I had even shifted to think it was my clothing and it didn't go away. And it eventually felt like a full hand was kind of grabbing uh, my backside. Mm. It is one that I, it's my my famous Crescent story. And it's, (laughs) it's, just something that I'd never really got an answer to either. Yeah. And, but I mean, and that was your first investigation there, but yet yes. you went back repeatedly. I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so now what was, you said you had another one. What's another one? Yes. So the other one was about six or seven months later and it was in building F. Uh, my friends and I had gone up. I had rented the place out for myself. It was a private investigation and there was nine of us on the property. Four of us had gone to building F. The other five had gone up to the top of the property. And we had been in F for a while, getting a lot of uh, noises. We'd even think a paint chip had been thrown at us at one point. And then, so we left and left a phone inside recording the hallway and walked outside and had it on a delay um, for through a live feed. And we were standing on the sidewalk, which is maybe 20 feet from the door. And then you go in the door and then you turn left and then go down a hallway. So you go through two doors to where this phone was. And from the outside, we heard this yell come from inside this building. And immediately it came through the phone, maybe five seconds later due to that delay. I sent our friends a message up at the top of the property. And I said, did you guys yell? And they were inside in the basement of another one, so they weren't anywhere near us. And it is this disembodied, it sounds, I'm not sure if it's female or male because it's high-pitched. But when we listened back to it, it had sounded like it was calling out my name. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. It is it's one that gives me goosebumps every time I still have the recording. And I have no explanations other than I know I'm in that building a lot. And I don't know if they just knew who I was at the time, but it is really eerie. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's one of those things like they do become familiar with you and Mm -hmm. you never know like what they like to scream out your name. Like, did they need something? Did they want you to come back? Like, were they messing with you? Like there could have been so many motivations there. I know. (laughs) So what do you think? Do you think they were trying to get your attention or why do you think they were yelling out for you? I think it was one of those times where they just wanted attention because we had been in there for so long and then just walked out. Right. And I don't know if they just wanted us back in because they do like attention in that building. And the more that you're in there and the longer you stay, the more activity you get. That makes sense. 
that's one of those things too. Like I tell people when you're investigating, sometimes you get lucky and things happen straight out the gate. But then there's other times where like you really do have to sit and let them become familiar with you. And like you have to get comfortable being there and get comfortable with the people that you're with. And then in turn, they'll feel that and they'll start interacting more. So it can take some time. It does. Yeah. And I think paranormal TV too, it kind of makes it look like we walk in and it's like instantly things are happening left and right. But like, it'd be a very boring show if we showed people like the build up to that, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Sitting for hours in the dark, just waiting. (laughs) Exactly. Just waiting for something to happen. So exactly. I just, I find that place just so incredibly interesting because I feel like you've kind of have the gamut, like I said earlier, just between like, I love how the people who ran the sanatorium just loved it so much, didn't want to leave, um, you know, and then it was the mental health facility, which I'm sure started with good intentions, but then really descended into some really dark places. And then finally ending up a, a prison, which again, like you have some of, I mean, I was surprised because it sounded like it started as kind of like a medium security spot, but ended up with some pretty intense killers and things. How did that happen? Do you happen to know? I'm not entirely sure how it happened. I know that the more, I guess, with the mental health facility being there and then having prisoners with that have mental health issues and intellectual disabilities, that's what they had there. You know, they had three different units for prisoners with mental issues. And uh, they were, the three main units were isolation units. Mm. So I think that the more that people found out about it and they knew that they could unfortunately send these prisoners with these issues there and they would, it wasn't good treatment. Right. It was a lot of horrible treatment. And, you know, with, there were the two uh, killers that were kind of famous, infamous with, you know, Joseph Callinger and John DuPont. They were the two inmates that I think people know the most about. And it's just, it's sad how many people ended up there in those isolation units with mental issues. So that makes sense. So it almost sounds like they were trying to rehabilitate some of these prisoners. Um, not rehabilitate, but like they had been deemed, they weren't necessarily like people who were out in society. These were people that had mental health issues and that's what led them to being killers, which would make explain why they'd be in that prison. But it sounded like it was just really awful, like what they went through. It was. So. There's a, a big report that I had uh, found myself and the Department of Justice had done an investigation and it, it details a lot of why the prison was shut down due to the mental health treatment of inmates. And mm. it is just a horrifying report to read. I can imagine. Like I kind of touched on it a little bit in the beginning, but I think that's important to remember too, like when you're investigating situations like this, like, you know, remember who you're talking to Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can't always pass judgment and assume that, you know, everyone you're talking to is out to get you. Like it's hard. It's like, you know, anyone could be standing in front of you and you can't see them when you're investigating a place like this. And so you always have to start from a place of compassion, obviously, unless they start, you know, grabbing your behind and whatnot, and then you (laughs) feel free to let them know where to go at that point. Um, But, you know, I just, I find it fascinating. I really, really do hope that they're able to kind of rectify what's going on there that this does become accessible again, not even just for the paranormal component, but just from a historical place. Like I think locations like this are so important to keep going in some way. 
I do too. It's such a beautiful location too, because it you can tell the difference between the tuberculosis buildings and what the prison had put up. And it is that just gorgeous Tudor revival style. And the architecture is amazing. So I do hope that, you know, there is room in the future for everyone to enjoy it again. I hope so too. Well, I really thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And um, maybe one day we'll meet in person. One day we'll investigate Crescent together. I hope. Yes, I hope Um, so. (laughs) But yeah, it's been great. And um, best of luck with everything you're doing. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The Crescent Sanatorium and prison was originally supposed to be a place for healing and recovery. Instead, after many iterations, it became a home for neglect, cruelty, and needless death. But I find it encouraging that it's now a farm. Assuming the operators can settle their dispute with the landlord, this can be a place for literal growth. Perhaps as small plants flourish and blossom in these walls, healing will occur. It's not too late for Crescent to return to its original purpose as a place to uplift and nourish. Maybe when it does, the souls who remain here will be able to move on. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Are you tired of the same old vacation destinations and cookie-cutter experiences? Do you crave a sense of mystery, wonder, and adventure that can't be found in ordinary travel brochures? Do you listen to this podcast and think, I'd like to visit that spooky place? Well, that's why I started Strange Escapes, a paranormal-based travel company that takes you to some of the most haunted locations in the world. Frankly, it's my excuse to combine all of my favorite things, which is ghosts, beautiful hotels, food and wine, and other weirdos like me, to be honest. (laughs) If that sounds right up your alley and you want to learn more, then visit strangeescapes.travel and hopefully you can join us sometime. Also, to keep up on all of my upcoming projects and appearances, head to amybruni.com. I have some really great things in the works and I don't want you to miss it. Thanks, Haunted Roadies. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni, with additional research by Cassandra De Alba. This show is edited and produced by Rima Elkeali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Learn more about this show over at grimandmild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.